Good. Well, good morning. We're going to be continuing our study in 1 Corinthians today. And looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 17 through 25. And so I'd like you to stand uh, for the reading of God's word. The key word today is foolishness. <clears throat> and so, not that the key word is foolish, but it is foolishness. Okay? So let's begin in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to this important passage as the great Apostle Paul is doing battle against the disunity that exists in the church in Corinth. Lord, help us to see the line of thought Help us to connect the dots. Lord, help us to see how one thing relates to another in your purposes. For that is itself true wisdom. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The Apostle Paul is addressing the problem of disunity in the church in Corinth. Now, part of the division, as we've already seen, was driven by preferences for various personalities in the leadership of the church. Some would say, I am of Paul. Others would say, I am of Apollos or of Cephas. And some would even say, oh, I am of Christ, so I'm more spiritual than all of you. But it was division nonetheless. They were even using Christ to be able to create a wedge between one believer and another. But evidently, there were other causes of division in the church that were coming from various philosophical backgrounds of the new believers. Now, think of the, the difficulty that you face when a bunch of people come to Christ at the same time, and yet they're all coming from different places in society. For example, uh, in our own culture today, Let's, let's imagine that there was a great revival in the church. And uh, suddenly there were hundreds of people who are now born-again believers, babes in Christ, but yet born again, loving God, loving one another. But one is a very, very zealous Republican. The other, another is a very, very zealous Democrat. Another is a very zealous libertarian. And another is coming to us with a very uh, zealous uh, independent party spirit. Okay? And, and you can keep going down to the Green Party and, and maybe even this, the Communist uh, Party USA. And, and it keeps going off in all these different directions. They're all Christians now. They're all born-again believers. But do they automatically shed all of these 
points of view, all these different ways of seeing the, the world. Are they all going to be able to just, you know, have a, a kumbaya moment where they just all say, none of this other stuff matters? No, they're, gonna, they're going to be, in a sense, still wanting to be advocates for their particular worldview, their political view. And I'm just dealing with politics at this point. We could go off into all kinds of different ways in which people are divided into different groups in society. And so here's what we've got in the church in Corinth. We've got people who are Christians. They're born again. They love God. And yet they've got all these ideas about the way things work. Now, the high regard that the Corinthian culture had for Greek philosophy would have created some level of disunity anywhere you brought these people together. You know, it wouldn't matter what the context was. And so the church is now a context in which very, very diametrically opposed points of view are thrown together and told to all agree with one another. And so we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words. Now notice what he says next. Lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. That's very serious. Paul is saying that if, if we begin to drop down into this level of the wisdom of words, the, the various philosophies that are popular within the culture, if we begin to get down at that level and begin trying to, to convince one another of, of uh, one point of view or another, we, we will see the cross of Christ being made of no effect. Something important will be lost. And so the danger was that the new converts would try to synchronize the gospel with their preferred Greek philosophies. And this confronts us with the, the problem that has existed throughout uh, world history, and that is the syncretic religious uh, community. Whenever you have a religion that is the accumulation of a lot of different ideas, uh, there is this process of just kind of, you know, something new comes along and you don't resist it, you just grab it and add it to whatever it is you believe. And so, for instance, when the Catholic Church came to South America uh, in the, uh, you know, 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue and uh, conquistadors followed on his heels. And as they came into South America, they were bringing the Catholic religion. But rather than saying the other religions were entirely unacceptable, there was a synchronizing of paganism with Catholicism, which even to this day is referred to as black Catholicism. Not, not by the race of blackness, but the, the idea of this is a Catholicism that incorporates a lot of weird stuff, <laughs> okay? Like curanderos, uh, witch doctors, voodoo, you know, just all kinds of things that they just, they just brought it in. Sometimes they would put a new face on it. And so rather than, uh, than having the, the uh, uh, deities of the, of the Aztecs and the, and the uh, different nations and tribes in South America uh, reject everything, they just simply put a new face on it, put a new name on it, and incorporated it, kept the festivals, kept the holidays, we see the same thing in Europe, in, in the confrontation with the Druids. Uh, and so that uh, uh, what had been a, uh, basically a, a Halloween trick-or-treat kind of event with the Druids and all the ghosts and the, and the, and, and the dead, uh, the worship of the dead, that gets incorporated and it becomes All Saints Day. And it, 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 you know, now we have taken that holiday and say, well, let's just reject all of that and we'll have Reformation Day, right? Same day of the month, but yet we're going to try to get everybody thinking about the reformers, which works, okay? I, I'm, I'm all in favor of that. But it's a replacement, not a syncretization. It's not a, a melding together, 
but rather it is a supplanting process. And so this is what Paul is up against. Is the gospel going to supplant philosophy or is it going to synchronize with philosophy and, and allow it to become incorporated into the Christian worldview? Will there be Christian Stoics? Will there be Christian Epicureans? You see, what, what we're up against here is how do you bring a revealed faith in its purity into human culture without that culture simply assimilating it and adding it to what they already believe. <clears throat> and if you think this is their problem and not our problem, you're wrong. This still happens today. And we are all capable of distorting the gospel in order to bring it into line with some philosophical idea that we've embraced and that we don't want to let go of. This is where the health and wealth gospel comes from. Okay? Let's turn Jesus into the ultimate health and wealth, you know, uh, super salesman, you know. And we find ourselves with an artificial faith that is really not the faith of Christ. It is not the faith of uh, the apostles. It is a faith that is an amalgamation of a whole bunch of popular ideas all jammed together in, in our minds. And we wonder why it's not working. And it's not working. It's not working. Whenever you try to meld together uh, the truth with something that is not the truth, you don't end up with just a slightly marred truth. You end up with a total falsehood. You end up with a lost, the truth is lost in the mix. I remember back in the day when uh, Microsoft uh, computers was, you know, they were the, the big game in town. And then you had the little Macintosh, you know, Apple computer over here. And uh, there was this sense of, you know, we are the, the, uh, the righteous minority over here and they're the big bad giant over here. And then there was a point at which Microsoft began to uh, work with the Macintosh and begin to accommodate the Macintosh's software and, and work, you know, interface is the word that was used. So, so we had a joke, we'd say, what do you get when you cross a Macintosh with an IBM PC? And the answer is a PC. You don't end up with a Mac, you end up with a PC and all the problems that came at that time uh, with that. Now, if you're a PC person, please forgive me. I'm not trying to diss you here today. But the point was, when the big guy and the little guy supposedly combine, you lose the little guy. He's just gone. Because of the big guy, it just overwhelms everything. Well, in the same way, Christianity is not something that can be adapted to the culture without being lost. And Paul is fighting in this, in this passage to keep the young believers in Corinth from assimilating Christianity into their existing philosophical worldviews. He's rejecting those philosophical worldviews in order to maintain the purity of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he, he approaches this by making it clear that the message of the cross has to be foolishness to the world. When it stops being foolishness to the world, then the cross, the message of the cross, is becoming of no effect. Okay? It's losing its savor, as Jesus would say. When the salt loses its savor, what is it good for but to be trampled under the foot of man. And so in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is amazingly powerful when it's saving you. It is absolute foolishness when you're still in that state of perishing. And you can tell when new birth has taken place because suddenly you have a new perspective on the gospel. So the pressure is always there to make the gospel more acceptable to the world. And how do we do that? 
by making it more reasonable, by making it easier to believe, less incredible, by making its members more respectable. You know, this is one of the things that Scientology is really good at. They go out and they try to, uh, I don't know if they don't just bribe people, you know, famous people say, hey, we'll give you a gazillion dollars if you'll come out publicly and say you're a Scientologist, because then that just causes their ranks to grow. And everybody goes, oh, Tom Cruise is a Scientologist. And, and uh, you know, uh, all, I, I'm not going to name all the actors and actresses because I don't, I don't know their names, but there's a bunch of them. And they go after these high-profile celebrities and say, hey, will you be a Scientologist because then we can use you as a poster child and promote our false religion. And they know it's a false religion. The, the guy who came up with it was a science fiction author. He, he, and he was even quoted, this, his name is Ron L. Hubbard. He was quoted back in the, like the 60s saying, if you really want to make the really big bucks, start your own religion. He said that. It's on the record. And yet Scientologists still march, you know, in, in step saying, listen, it's wonderful. He took a science fiction story and rebranded it as a new religion. And it is so crazy. And yet it grows and grows and grows because they have managed to have members who are some of the elite in the various fields of modern society. And, and you want to make its preachers more fashionable you know, more clever, more entertaining. This is the beginning of infomercial. So this is the beginning of infotainment, right? Where you get these sophists, these philosophers who show up and they're able to just dance with their words uh, in front of you and, and just awe you with their, their cleverness and the complexity of the, what they have to say. And you can see that even today in, you know, you, you start browsing through some of the more popular YouTube, uh, you know, podcasts and so on. And there's just this constant parade of clever people, right? Now, this effort always brings the same disunity that was endemic to the Corinthian society into the church. And so Paul is fighting against this disunity. He hasn't stopped in his war against the disunity in the church. And his solution is not to have a big conference and sort out whose worldview is better than the other guy, but rather to reject all of the wisdom of this world in order to embrace the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So in order, to, in order for the revealed gospel, remember that word revealed, we, we didn't get it by thinking it out. It didn't come to us by somebody you know, smarter than the rest of us sitting down and saying, hey, I got an idea. No, it was revealed by God. And when something is revealed by God, you can't edit it. Okay? When something's revealed by God, you can't improve upon it. I used to uh, have a ministry to college students back in... Dayton, Ohio, at Wright State University. And uh, we had a group particip participation Bible study. A lot of young people coming to it, unbelievers coming to it, a lot of kids getting saved. And there was one particular study in which uh, I, I was trying to illustrate the principle of God's truth and how it's different from every other idea, which is an error. And so... Um, I went out and I got a, a long piece of solder, you know, a very pliable, flexible length of solder. And I, and I brought it in and it was all, I had it completely straight and I had a trick on how to do that. Okay, so I got it completely straight as a, as a beam right there. And I said, now this is the truth. There's only one way to be truth and that is there is no bend. There's no bend at all. So then I put my hand on this end, I put my hand on this end, and I went like that. And now I had a big wad of solder, and I tossed it out to the kids in the, in the, sitting around on the carpet there, and I said, now straighten that out for me. Get it as straight as you can. And they worked, and they worked, and they worked, and no matter how hard they tried, 
There was always a little bend here, a little bend there. They could not, if they straightened this one, it made that one more crooked. They just kept working at it, couldn't get it straight. So I said, well, let me show you how you can straighten out your life. And so I took that still bent piece of solder and I laid it on the table there. And at that time, and I still have this Bible, but I had a big Thompson chain reference Bible. It was about this wide, you know, about like that. And I took that Bible and I laid it on top of that wire and I began to roll it. Just rolled it over and over that wire on the table. And when I finished rolling it a little while and I picked up the wire, it was perfectly straight. There's only one way to be perfectly straight. There are millions and billions of ways to be crooked. Okay, think about that. And that's the way the gospel is. There's only one gospel. And if you add to it or take away from it, you distort it, you bend it, you corrupt it. And so Paul says, if anyone comes to you with any other gospel than the one that I've preached, then let him be anathema, let him be cursed. It's that important. And so the false wisdom of this world uh, has to be rejected in order for you to embrace the purity of the truth of the gospel. And so God has made foolish the wisdom of this world by coming to it with an irrational gospel. It is an unreasonable gospel according to the wisdom of this world. 1 Corinthians 1.19 For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? When you try to understand the gospel by means of this world's wisdom, it does not make any sense. We need to admit that. You know, as Christians, sometimes uh, we, we are... Uh, Influenced by apologists. You know, an apologist is somebody who makes a case for Christianity by pointing out things within science and history and art and so on and saying, see, Christianity makes sense. Christianity is true. And I'm not against that. There are places where we see that in the scriptures, that approach of pointing out the truth. But the reality is, it ain't going to make sense to the people who are perishing. It will only sound like we are trying to you know, paint our faith in more and more modern colors, but it's not going to win anyone to Christ. That is only accomplished when God moves by the power of the Spirit in the person's life as they hear the simple truth of the gospel. Now, I know that's, that's frustrating to some people because they want to be that intellectual champion for Christianity, you know, and, but even somebody like C.S. Lewis, you know, who was a wonderful advocate for the faith, he kept the gospel simple. And he acknowledged the fact that it would not make sense to the person coming from a worldly wisdom point of view. It is ridiculous. Now, one of my, my uh, personal heroes as a preacher, although he doesn't, uh, doesn't like me uh, or agree with me on a lot of things, but it's John MacArthur. I, I love to read his works, and, and it's a good reality check when I'm you know, going through this passage. I say, oh, I wonder what John said about this. Well, here's something that he said. He said, the Greek word for foolishness, and you will recognize it, it is the word moron. Moron is the Greek word for foolish. That is the word, actually, the word moron. It is stupid. It is pointless. It is brainless. It moronic. It doesn't suit human wisdom to say that there is one God, that there is only one way to God, and that the way to God is through the God-man, that Jesus Christ, who was, who was a crucified Jew, executed by the Romans, rejected by his people, put on a cross, etc., etc., and salvation comes by rejecting any good work of your own and recognizing your wretched sinfulness and embracing by faith the sacrifice of Christ in your place. That is contrary to human wisdom. Can you see that? The fallen mind says you're good. 
And if you're really good, you're going to be okay. That's human wisdom, human reason. Fallen human reason dominated by pride. (coughs) Oh man, excuse me, didn't mean to do that. And so, the gospel, when you just state it clearly and simply and unvarnished, it sounds ridiculous. And it, it, was only, it would only not be ridiculous if it's true. Right? It's only if it's true that suddenly it makes sense. And so what's the difference between it being true and it being ridiculous? It's your faith. And that faith is even not of your own. It's something that's a gift from God. God gives you a faith to believe the truth, even though that truth, from a human wisdom perspective, is absolutely ridiculous. And whether you're a Jew or a Greek in the context of Paul's uh, time, this gospel is unbelievable, okay? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign. What sign do they request? The sign that you're the Messiah. They want to see the moon turn to blood and you know, the sun uh, cease to shine. They want to see the stars falling from heaven. Then they say they'll believe. But they had all the miracles of Jesus to convince them, and they still did not believe because they didn't want to believe because they had a heart that was filled with pride. Now, I've said it before, and I will say it again, The challenge, the problem that we face as human beings is that we want what we want. And we can't change what we want because we don't want to. That's the trap. We have human will. We have free will, if you like. But our free will is bound by our nature. And we have the nature of sinners running from our Creator suppressing the truth that we have in our unrighteousness, trying to get away from the God who is calling us to repent. And so the Jews seek a sign, and, and a big part of that sign was, you're going to come and, 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 and kick the Romans out of Judea. That would be a great sign for the Jews, right? We'll believe you then. But instead, Jesus comes and gets crucified by the Romans. Now, the the Jews helped that happen. You know, they they contributed to that. But do you see the ridiculousness? The Jews seek a sign. Jesus can't be the Messiah because he's not reigning. Uh, He got crucified by the Romans. You know, even though they know, at least some of them know, that he rose from the dead, they bribed the Roman soldiers to say that the body was stolen even though those soldiers would be in in jeopardy of their own lives for failing to fulfill their commission to guard the tomb. Do you see the ridiculousness of this? Bonnie and I are uh, somewhat fans of the Babylon Bee. I don't know if any of you are familiar with the Babylon Bee or not, but it's a a Christian satire site, okay? And uh, they just make fun of all the ridiculous things in our culture and in the world, both in the Christian community and in the secular communities. And so they go after a lot of the ridiculous arguments about all, a lot of issues. But there's one particular uh, skit that they did that, that I, I really like, and that's where they're having all the apostles gather together after Jesus has, has been crucified, and Peter says to the group, they're all dressed up with, you know, uh, sheets on their heads and things like that, and they're all looking Jewish here. He says, okay, guys, Jesus is dead. We've got to acknowledge that. He says, but i got a plan. They go, what is it? He goes, what we're going to do is we're going to go and steal the body. And then when we steal the body, we're going to tell the people that Jesus rose from the dead. And then when that is done, then we're going to all get to die. And then Thomas is going, wait, wait, wait a minute. 
That doesn't sound like a very good plan to me. He goes, well, let me explain it again. We're going to steal the body. We're going, you know, we're going to tell the people that, the, that the Jesus rose from the dead. And then we're all going to get burned and, and tortured and, and boil in oil and crucified. And we're all going to die. And Thomas is going, that's crazy. Why would we do that? You know, and so they're just poking huge amounts of fun on this idea that the apostles would all come up with this plan to steal the body of Christ, which is what many people in the world believe. That these, these disciples all decided to steal the body, say Jesus was risen from the dead, and then go to their deaths without ever you know, revealing that it was all just a big hoax. It's ridiculous. And yet that's what the world believes. And so to the Jews, it is a stumbling block. A crucified Christ is a stumbling block. And to the Greeks, it's foolishness. The Greeks want something more sophisticated than that. It, it is totally unimpressive. It's not clever. It doesn't have the kind of a sophistication. Do you know where the word sophistication comes from? From the sophists. The sophists were traveling philosophers who would come to town and entertain you with their progressively more bizarre philosophies of, of how uh, everything works. And so Christianity was not sophisticated enough to impress the Greeks. But to those who are called, now here's an important word, we are, if you didn't know it, a reformed church. It's in our name, right? We believe in the sovereign grace of God and that God sovereignly calls those whom he has chosen out of this world and he gives them everything that's needed for their salvation. The only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that gets forgiven. That's the sovereign grace of God. It's not based upon our merits. We are not smarter than the average person. It's not because we had the good sense to repent. We were dead in trespasses and sins. And God has saved us out of that. And he gets all the glory. We are not going to go to heaven and say, hey, I'm here because I had the good sense to become a Christian. No, I am saved by grace. And even that itself was a gift from God. And so that is what it's referred to here as those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And so we have this gospel, this good news that flies in the face of Jewish demands for a miraculous sign and the Greek demands for a sophisticated philosophy. God has also chosen unremarkable people <laughs> to be his representatives. Now, Paul goes through this list and it's, you know, here we are, we're there. He says, for you see your calling, brother. There's that word calling again. Uh, that not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, are called. Now, fortunately, he didn't say not any. Okay? So we have some, some C.S. Lewis's. Okay? We have some John MacArthur's. We have some, some John Piper's. We even have a few Brian Ray's. And so, you know, we've got, we've got a few that are uh, top drawer intellects that God calls into his kingdom and grants to them the, the grace to let go of uh, thinking uh, everything from a human wisdom perspective and humbly receiving the gospel of God's grace. But not many. Not many are called. Now remember, these people are called. It's not that God is making do with the dummies that are willing to believe. He's calling those who are not remarkable. Okay? That's what this is saying. 
But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to, to put to shame the wise. I can't do that. Let me take a sip. Now notice the wording here. He has chosen the foolish things of the world. Not making do with them, he's chosen them. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame things which are mighty. And the base things. That word base is a very, it's one of the most insulting words you can use. It, it, it in essence is saying you don't even exist in my world. You don't even count. I'm not interested in anything you have to say. You are base, okay? You are non-existent. The base things of this world, the things which are despised, that, that word despised we need to understand is the word ignored. The, the, the ignored are those who are, are just, you know, just totally off the radar. We're not even gonna pay attention to them. These God has chosen. If you're not reformed enough yet, let this passage speak to your heart. God has chosen. He's chosen. He's chosen. You say, but doesn't it say whosoever will may come? Yes, whosoever will may come. But who will? As we're going to see, it's those that the Father draws. Those that Jesus calls. And so the base things of this world, the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Why would God take this approach? It is in order that no flesh, that means no human being, should glory in his presence. No one's going to be standing in heaven saying, Ha! I made it! Look at me! No, we are all going to be there only with the, righteous, the robe of righteousness issued to us by a gracious Savior. But of him you are in Christ Jesus. Notice that. Do you want to know why you believe? Do you want to know why you love the Bible when the world thinks it's stupid? Do you want to know why you are a Christian when your neighbor thinks that's ridiculous? You are in Christ Jesus. Of him you are in Christ Jesus. God did the work. God saved you. He rescued you. He called you. And he will now glorify you. Notice it says, who became for us, this is Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness. He is our righteousness. Sanctification. He is our sanctification. And redemption. He is our redemption. That as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And so when we are in heaven, we will be saying, Jesus saved me. I was dead. And he brought me to life. He gave me his Holy Spirit. I don't deserve to be here. But here I am because of him. That's what we'll be saying. We'll be singing amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. It's all of him and nothing of me. God has also chosen to use unfashionable preachers to proclaim his gospel. He's chosen them. Now, he's not making do with them. He's not wishing he could get a few more, you know, more clever preachers. Because it's the foolishness of the message preached that saves, not the cleverness of the preacher. And so in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1, we read, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined to not know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. 
And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. In this passage, Paul is describing what others refer to as his speech is contemptible, right? He's not an impressive preacher. The only reason you would be at all affected by this man is because his message is true. Now, now think about this. Let's, let's say you have some member of your family who is not playing with a full deck, okay? He's just not that smart. Maybe it's you, okay? But, you know, the point is, not that clever, not that smart. But uh, the postman shows up at the door with a big envelope and it hands it to this not so smart person in your family. And that not very smart person brings that envelope to you and hands it to you. You see what's going on here? It's not a matter of how clever or handsome or, or, or anything else intellectual it might be. It's can you get this letter from here to there? That's it. And that is what it means to be commissioned to take the gospel to the world. Can you deliver the mail? Not edit the mail, <laughs> not, not revise it, you know, not spruce it up in some way, just deliver it. Because when you deliver it and the person you deliver it to opens it and sees it, then whatever the, the good news in that letter is suddenly becomes theirs. And that's what's going on. Paul is trying to drill down to this idea that it's not the cleverness of the messenger, it's the truth of the message. As foolish as that message is to those who are perishing, it's the truth of God that saves the soul and that sets in motion all that salvation involves. And so if you've been holding back because you don't think you're smart enough, clever enough, good-looking enough, and you're failing to deliver the message of the cross to those around you, then I just want to encourage your heart. I don't want to condemn you. You know, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I'm just wanting to encourage you. If you know enough to be saved, you know enough to be able to lead someone else to Christ. It's that simple. The Greeks were really into their oratory. It was the original infotainment with the sophists coming to town routinely to wow their audiences with their sophistication. And God rejected all of that and instead he chose people like Saul of Tarsus, a Jewish man to win the Gentiles to Christ. The simplicity of Paul's speech reveals a greater wisdom than the wisdom of this world to those who are alive in Christ. Now this is important. It only starts to make sense when you're alive. And that means you're born again. He says, however, we speak wisdom among those who are mature. Now that word mature is the word complete in the, in the Greek. And the idea has to include new birth. You're not complete in Christ until you've been born again. And when you are born again, even though you may be a babe in Christ, as you recall in the message about how you have all the necessary parts, it's there, it just needs to grow up, right? And as you begin to mature, become more and more complete in Christ, the wisdom of God becomes more and more obvious to you. It says that yet not the wisdom of this age nor of the rulers, the wisdom of the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing. Now that has to include Satan. Satan is the god of this world. We know that the whole world lies in the lap of the evil one, and so Satan has to be right there at the top of the list of those who are the, uh, the rulers of this age. But it would also include all of Satan's puppets, all those that he has deceived and and placed into positions of authority as he tried to get Christ to accept positions of authority in this world. And Jesus rejected that. 
His way was not to become a worldly ruler, but rather to be the Savior of the world. It says, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. And that word mystery means something that had once been misunderstood, not known, and now is known. It's not continuing to be mysterious. It is a mystery because it was not always known, but now it is known. We speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If Satan had known what was going to happen when Christ was crucified, he would not have wanted him crucified. Think about that. Because to crucify him was to make a way for those who trust in Jesus to be saved. Satan would never want that. He thought he was getting a victory that day by crucifying the Messiah. Instead, he was fulfilling the mission of the Messiah to lay his life down as a payment for all the sins of the whole world. If Satan and his human puppets had any idea of what Christ's death would accomplish, they never would have put him to death. Now to receive the wisdom of God's Spirit, we must renounce the spirit of this world. Well, this is where our sanctification begins. You see, we come into the kingdom of God with all kinds of of ideas in our heads. And we are alive in Christ. We've come to faith in Christ. We are born again. We now have the Spirit of God. But in order for us to become mature Christians and to stop being divisive, we have got to renounce the wisdom that comes from the Spirit of this world. And that includes not only the personality cults of I am of Apollos and I am of Paul and so on. It also means let go of your stoicism. Let go of your Republican Party alliance. Now I'm not saying you let go of the things that, that God supports, okay? Can I distinguish that for a moment? You know, there was a time in which you had pro-life Democrats and pro-life Republicans, and you could be a Democrat or a Republican in the same church, and, and you would be arguing over labor and management issues and strikes and things like that. You know, one guy overhears the employer, the other guy overhears the employee, and they're not getting along very well because this guy wants more higher wage, and this guy's saying, no, I, I, I can't afford that. Okay, you can have those people in the same church. But you can't have baby murderers in the church and say, well, you know, that's one way to look at things. No, it's not. You have to distinguish the Democratic Party from the policies and the platforms that they've embraced in order to grow their majority uh, in the political process. Am I making sense? Okay. Now, libertarians, I know you're out there. Uh, Independent Party, I know you're out there. Green Party, we may have some Green Party people in the church. Hey, welcome. The point is, we've got to let go of the wisdom of this world, and we've got to progressively embrace the wisdom of the Spirit of God. And this is going to be wonderfully valuable for us, because we're going to be able to sort through some of the things that the world cannot settle, because we have a wisdom that comes from above. We can bring to every conversation an insight and an understanding that the world can't have. Now, they're not necessarily going to embrace us and like it, but, you know, like my, my brother uh, Brian this last week or two, he's been going to war against this idea of inviting government funds to come into the homeschooling movement and to support homeschool families and as though that money is going to come with no strings attached. And so, because Brian has the Spirit of God in his heart and his mind, he's able to see this issue much more clearly than some within the homeschooling movement who are just saying, hey, it's free money. 
it's our money. Why not take the money from the government if they're willing to give it to us? And the answer is because that is the path to serfdom. That is the path to slavery. That is the path to losing your rights as parents to decide what to teach your children and how to teach your children. And so, uh, although that may be a rabbit trail, uh, it's an example. For it is written, eye has not seen nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. So, we can't get that by human reasoning. But notice verse 10. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, every issue in life. Yes, the deep things of God. You want to be a better scientist? Walk in the Spirit. Do you want to be a better artist? Walk in the Spirit. You want to be a better author? Walk in the Spirit, because the Spirit searches all things. And we have something important to say about every area of life, because we have the mind of Christ. And that mind of Christ is not just about religious things. He created the world and everything in it. He knows what he's talking about. And he's given that to us by his Spirit. Notice what it says. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Now I want to pause for a moment and make an observation. We think we know what we know because we're conscious of it, right? But have you been thinking about your heartbeat today? Or how about a little more more obscure? Have you been thinking about your liver function today? Have you been uh, having a conversation with your kidneys today? How do all these things work when you're not even thinking about it? It's because there's a spirit in you that's minding all of these things. Your spirit right now is well aware of the condition of every organ in your body. You may not be cognitively aware of it. You may never be cognitively aware of it until you go in and get some scan or test done. But the point is, your spirit knows the deep things about you. It's all there. And it's all part of a a level of cognition that is not entirely conscious. And so when we look at this and you say, for what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. The gospel is simple, but true. It doesn't have to be sophisticated because it's true. It doesn't have to be impressive because it's true, okay? If it's true, it doesn't need any adornment. It doesn't need any help. It's like, it's like pure water. You think you're improving upon water by adding sugar to it, and carbonation. Say, well, it tastes better. Yeah, but in terms of its purpose, <clears throat> is it improved? A nice glass of cool, fresh, clean, pure water accomplishes what God intended it to accomplish. It's unadulterated, undiluted. And so the the truth of the gospel is true, while the wisdom of this world is incredibly complex, but completely false. And because of that, our simple truth trumps their complicated lies. 
The Holy Spirit provides us with an entirely new spiritual vocabulary. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man, the man without the Spirit of God, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Now Paul is, is just drilling in on this issue that if you do not have the Spirit of God, if you have not yet been born again, then nothing about the truth of the gospel could ever make any sense to your human understanding. It is ridiculous, and it will only make sense when you have the eyes to see it. And until you're born again, you don't. And so that's why when we're doing the work of evangelism, we have to be careful that we don't try to make the gospel more understandable than it is when it's simply stated accurately. Because anything else is a step towards syncretism, and that is dangerous. In trying to redefine spiritual terms with the ideas of human wisdom, you go out and talk to somebody in a cult, like I was speaking recently with a Jehovah's Witness, and uh, they've got all the terminology, but different definitions for all the terms. When they use the word grace, they don't mean what grace really means. When they talk about the Spirit, they don't mean what we mean, what the Bible means by the Spirit. And so you've got this, this, this confusion that's created by taking biblical terminology and redefining it in terms of a philosophical, false religious worldview. Whenever we mix God's truth with human wisdom, whether by philosophy or the big one is psychology and the therapeutic movement, we just end up with human wisdom. We don't end up with a uh, new improved Christianity. We end up with a diluted, dilapidated uh, Christianity, which is what, by the way, liberalism is. Liberal Christianity is not Christianity at all. It's a different religion, and it doesn't deliver the goods. So finally, the one who is born again with a new heart and with the Holy Spirit as his teacher is truly enlightened. That's the, that's the only accurate use of that term, enlightened. Okay? Any other context, it is just deceit and deception. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 15, But he who is spiritual, truly spiritual, judges all things. Now this is where I want to come back to this idea you don't realize how much you have to offer to every area of life. Because if you are spiritual, you can look at any situation, any problem, and you can look at it with the mind of Christ. And you can bring a perspective to that area that the world can't. And that's why we are salt and light in the world. That's why our presence in any situation, as annoying as, as we may be to those who are lost, we actually do have a good and wise perspective on whatever the problem or the issue may be. So don't back off. Don't be intimidated. Don't shut up and go into your corner. When we come to a political issue and we bring a Christian perspective to it, we are being the salt and light of the earth. When we come to a scientific problem, a mathematical equation, when we come to an artistic challenge, when we come to an architectural challenge, we bring the mind of Christ to that. And that is how we can be salt and light and not only see things in terms of technology, but also in terms of ethics. We can make sure that we do the right things in the right ways for the right reasons at the right times. And so as, as, as bizarre as it might, be, it might seem, 
Christians have answers to the question, what are we going to do with artificial intelligence? How's that going to work? How is that going to be implemented? How can it be made safe? Don't run away from these things and so say, oh, it's terrible. Let's sit back and watch and see what happens. No. <laughs> We're supposed to engage and participate. He says he judges all things. That means he's got an opinion, a perspective. And yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. Nobody can understand how do you get to where you get What's the process by which you see? How do you explain what it means to see to somebody who's blind? Because how do you do that? How do you just reach out and grab something without having to feel around for it? Well, it's because I've got eyes. I can see. What's seeing? That's what it really is like in this world. We are people who can see in a world full of blind. And we need to use our gift of sight to serve them. We have the mind of Christ. Now, not to put this in, into extra biblical you know, territory here, let's take a look at what John has to say in John chapter 2 and verse 20. But you, no, this is 1 John chapter 2, verse 20. But you have an anointing. You have an anointing from the Holy One. That's that's the Holy Spirit. And you know all things. I do? Yeah. You know all things. Verse 27. But the anointing which you have received from Him abides in you. And you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things and is true and is not a lie and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. Now I can't say that I understand entirely what John is saying here. But I do know that it reinforces what Paul is saying that we have the mind of Christ. Do you want unity in the church? Walk in the Spirit with the mind of Christ. Don't try to force Christianity into your previous worldview. Force your previous worldview off the screen and let the whole screen be filled with the revelation of God by the Spirit through the mind of Christ. When we are all walking in that spirit with the mind of Christ, unity will be our experience. We we may have arguments and discussions about all kinds of things, but it's all us bringing our particular degree of the mind of Christ to the topic. And that's why we have elders in the church. We're supposed to be mature, walking in the spirit with the mind of Christ. We don't have all the answers, but Christ does. And we have the Bible, we have the Spirit, and we walk in that Spirit. And so, in closing, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, no one can believe the Gospel. Martin Luther said during his time, the Bible cannot be understood simply by study or talent. It must come from the Holy Spirit. And by the way, I didn't get this from ChatGPT. Zwingli, the great reformer in Zurich during the Reformation, he wrote, even if you receive the gospel of Jesus directly from an apostle, you can't act according to it unless your heavenly Father teaches you and draws you to himself by his Spirit. These are true statements. And by the way, being led to Jesus by an apostle is what happens every time you read your Bible. Okay. This is not some mystical thing. Our Lord Jesus said in John chapter 6 and verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. And then finally, John 6 verse 65 And he said, therefore, I have said to you that no one 
can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. This ultimately is why some believe and others do not. Whosoever will may come, but those who will come are those who are drawn by the Father, granted access by the Father. And so when you're doing your evangelism, notice I didn't say if, when you're doing your evangelistic work, realize that it's just a matter of delivering the simple truth of the gospel in terms that the Holy Spirit can then empower and drive home in that heart and open their heart and their mind and their eyes to see the truth. It's not that you're a bad evangelist if they don't get saved. It's just a matter of whether God has chosen them, whether he's called them, and it may not happen in the moment when you're standing there in front of them, but as we all know, by several means of contact with Christians and with the gospel, we are brought to Christ. We are brought to faith in Christ. So be one of those nudges in this person's life. Be kind. Speak the truth in love. Let the Holy Spirit work in you and through you. And God will do wonders. And you won't have to compromise the gospel and make it more worldly wise in order to get the job done. That's the temptation of evangelicals, to distort the gospel in order to get decisions. We don't have to do that. We simply deliver the mail and let the Holy Spirit change the hearts of people. I don't know if I've shared this analogy with you before, but evangelism is, is like, you know those, uh, in New York City, there's these big light uh, signs, you know, with thousands of light bulbs on them. And imagine that there's a sign like that and every light bulb in that sign is slightly unscrewed and in addition to that, every light bulb has a broken filament. So we get two problems, right? One is not in touch with the electricity, and the second, it's got a broken filament. Evangelism is screwing in light bulbs. Salvation is putting a new filament in those light bulbs. We can't put the new filament in, but we can give everybody a little twist, okay? And so when you are talking to somebody, think of yourself like that. You don't know whether God's going to put a new filament in this light bulb or not. But your little twist is going to put them in touch with the power that does save souls. And so our job, it's a wonderful job. It's a doable job. And God is the one who gets all the glory because only he can put a new heart and a new spirit into that human being.